So we continue our series, Two Walkers, Jesus Did, Jesus, His Life from Baptism to, uh, to Burial is a model. In fact, the Bible even says that His resurrection is a model for us, um, but that little bit uh, waits a while. That His ascension is a model for us, and that little bit waits a while, but Jesus is our model. He's completely unique in being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's unique in being the only man whose identity is God, but he is our model, and he calls us to walk as he did. So we're unpacking that, and, and um, I need to say that our series consists of six uh, blocks. So there's, uh, we've, got, we've got three, sorry, there's three six-week blocks. So we've done six weeks, believe it or not. I know it just felt so much shorter. Um, but this week, and then we're going to press pause for a while and then pick up the series in the second term, do another six-week block, and then pick it up again. My apologies to those of you who are following the readings and are kind of going, well, what am I supposed to read in the meantime? Well, just start again, and maybe six weeks will have passed by the time we uh, pick it up. Or else there's some really good reading material around, and, and you can ask Tracy or someone like that, and they can point you in that direction. Um, but turn to the person next to you and just tell them this. Love is worth fighting for. Okay, now say it like you mean it. <laughs> and in this fight, of course, you're the one who's meant to die. Your old selfish life has to be crucified if love is going to win. Because there is an agenda that lives for self. Um, and, uh, and, and its end is death. And there is a way that lives by the Spirit of Jesus, and its end is absolute life. And only in the Spirit can you get what everyone has wanted all along. And we were looking at this last week in our study of Galatians chapter 5. Those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Only in the Spirit. The things that the world is going crazy for and using every selfish way to try and achieve, only in the Spirit are those things actually ultimately attainable. We come to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. As we pick up, Today I want to talk about opening our hearts to emotion as an essential part of the discipleship journey in following Jesus. And this is a really risky thing to do in a culture and society such as ours, no matter your color, that has been so deeply influenced by rationalism. Um, and, and a bunch of you already got your defense mechanisms going up, and hopefully the Holy Spirit is uh, a little bit stronger than your defense mechanisms today. But I want to show you that if you want to walk in the Spirit, you cannot shut off any aspect of your created existence from the Lord. And so we know we need to renew our minds, for example, and later in the series we'll look at how that looks. But actually opening ourselves deeply so that the love and grace of God can reform us, reshape us, and retool our responses to the kinds of situations Jono was talking about. So having, having unpacked the gospel in its core, but still busy unpacking it in its implication, 
the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says in Romans chapter, what we have is Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, so that was, in a sense, the argument up until this point in the first uh, four chapters, since we have been justified through faith, and we've looked at that reality and truth in the heart of grace, even inside the series, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, that's just worth taking a lot of time to think about. But what I want you to see is that there's peace. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, of course, these people were living, um, you know, easy lives. Everything was going well. The gospel was spreading at a rapid pace, and they were popular. And people were giving them stuff, and they'd become famous. No, no, no. These people were being beaten, imprisoned, dragged before courts, flogged, whatever. And they boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, now, we like to think our country is in trouble. You just needed to go to Palestine or ancient Rome to know an empire that was overwhelmingly evil. In fact, in the book of Revelation, this empire imagery is described as a whore and a dragon and a beast. It's Babylon, a place of captivity. And it's in this place that they boast in the hope of the glory of God. I, I am really challenged by the fact that in the reality of that political and social chaos, they continue to live out and hold to this gospel. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know a little bit from what we heard from J.P. earlier in James chapter 1, um, that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. In other words, some of the very tough stuff that we go through is going to change our attitude, our approach to life. And there is an emotional aspect to this. This is just not just how you think, it's about how you feel, not so. Like, I mean, hopelessness does affect your thoughts, but it comes from your kind of affective center. What you attach to, what you feel strongly about. And hope does not disappoint us, or this translation, hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This picture last, last week, Neville told us, he just saw a waterfall and we were standing under this waterfall that was just flowing and pouring and pouring. And it was this good, radiant waterfall. And he has this picture in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 of just love being poured, but not on your body but into your heart. Now, I know in Romans, the word for heart 
at times speaks of the totality of your being, but you're completely kidding yourself if you don't think it's got to do with your affections and your emotions and your feelings. You probably have to be deeply influenced by Western rationalism to miss the point. People feel differently when the gospel comes to them. Literally. They carry a new way of relating and connecting. And then the passage gives us the root system of it. You see, just at the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's how you attain power, is to know that Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, at the right time, when we were powerless, and there's a lot of talk about powerlessness, God's solution for powerlessness is that Christ died for the ungodly. That's an incredible connection to, to make and understand. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me start with a bit of a controversial story. Some years back, um, I got to attend um, a conference here in Cape Town, actually, with uh, Heidi Baker and her husband, Roland. They have, I don't know if you know, but a remarkable ministry uh, that has a worldwide reach, but they're based in Mozambique, and they're ministering in some of the most insanely challenging circumstances that you could possibly imagine. And whether it's in health, whether it's in safety and security, whether it's in finance, whether it's in the political climate, whether it's in the midst of civil war and famine, these guys are living out a radical ministry to churches, but it's you know, kind of focused first on children and on turning children's lives around and the people most vulnerable in what was at the time that they began, one, one of the two most poverty-stricken countries in the world. Their ministry is spreading like wildfire, marked by literally thousands of credible testimonies of healings, of miracles, of supernatural provision, and so on. And it's not just their ministry, it's what's unlocked through their lives. And yeah, they are in Cape Town, ministering to quite a mixed congregation and they spent a huge amount of time. I had to go back and think about it. Why? Because they were trying to help us do gospel stuff and do kingdom ministry and that kind of thing. And they spent a huge amount of time trying to get us to enjoy the Lord. I don't know if that strikes you odd. You, you, you know, surely we get it. To enjoy the gospel. To, to, to enjoy the truth. To smile when someone says, Father God, or Jesus, or Holy Spirit. And they were convinced that to live an effective Christian life required integrating positive emotion into our faith and experience. And I had to go back and do a lot of thinking because, listen, hey, you know, words and reason and debate and study, that's my field of expertise. And, you know, my pastoral gift is called Cindy. Um, and so, <laughs> kind of coming to this point, and 
At one stage, Roland Baker made this comment. He said, it seems to take more faith to help a South African to laugh than to raise a Mozambican from the dead. I was like, enough. Now, these are guys who travel the world, and they just recognize a spirit of heaviness on us. And they are people who come from a country that's in a far more, certainly at that time, and probably still in so many you know, ways of trying to measure these things that the world has created, a country in far more distress. And, and they just refused to not enjoy their faith. And to not be inspiring in the way they approached. And I had to like really go, wow, you know. And there was overwhelming suffering, even to death's door for them personally. And yet they carried a contagious laughter, a controversial laughter. But not, and not just joy, but actual laughter. I mean, it was fun to be with them. You know, we talk about inexpressible joy from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. I have an inexpressible joy, meaning for most of us, we never express it. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what he means. You know, Peter's writing to people who hadn't seen Jesus. He obviously had just explained, I've seen him. I'm a credible eyewitness, but you have not seen him, and you love him. Isn't that an amazing thought? And I do. I haven't seen him. Open my eyes, Jesus, but I love you. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And what faith should give you is an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. Joy, inexpressible joy, is part of the end result of your faith, which includes the making whole and the rescue of your soul. The inner part of you. Pulled out of darkness and brought into light. Sure. So guys, we've got a one point sermon. Be very afraid. The kingdom, yeah, miracles still happen. <laughs> the kingdom of God comes only to those who trust him enough to let him get right inside their hearts. The kingdom of God comes only to those who trust him enough to get him right inside your heart and your soul. Because God wants to give you the end result of your faith, the redeeming, the rescue, the saving of your soul, which isn't a ticket to heaven one day, but rather the deposit of glorious, inexpressible joy today and tomorrow and the next day. You see, just as peace is countercultural because we're in a world of chaos and conflict, so joy is deeply, prophetically countercultural. I know there can be inappropriate laughter, cruel laughter. That's all we're talking about. It's always at the expense of someone else, although stay tuned. Um, okay, so the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5. This love, joy, peace, patience, etc. is described by Romans 5 verse 5 in our reading as the love of God being poured into the center of our truest selves. Like just where, where I am truly, deeply me. Nothing hidden. Opened up and God's love being poured. And what it does is it changes our disposition. 
our affections, our emotional responses. And it fills us with, when, when the love of God comes like this, the teaching of Scripture is that we will have a wide range of healthy, graceful, life-releasing emotions. That's, that's what it's saying. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, those are just lovely, beautiful things to see in a person, aren't they? And you're just kidding yourself if those are not part of your emotional makeup. Like, I'm, a, I'm very happy. Very, very happy. I'm just also religious. No, 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 no. I, I mean, the early church was contagious in its peace, contagious in its joy. Colossians 3 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That, that's actually a political statement because, of course, Rome wanted the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to rule everything. So it was a like... Stop relying on them to give you peace. And we all know what Rome's peace looks like. It looks like a sword. It looks like an iron boot on your throat. That's the peace of Rome. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart, not the peace of Rome rule your throat. We should expect to see joy. Hear laughter and discern peace with God and, and our stuff. And I just never realized how much of a stronghold this Western rationalism actually is. And there are other forms of Eastern Stoicism, for example, that are equally uh, kind of rigid, frigid, and disassociative. And you can't, whereas the Hebrew thought is so deeply integrating of all the bits and pieces of your life. And if we're afraid of love and the healthy emotions that accompany it, listen to me. I mean this theologically. We will quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. If we're afraid of love and the emotions that accompany it as God pours the Spirit into our hearts, we will quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. Because this is what he produces. And you've either got to shut him down or he's going to do his, his job. You've got to shut him down if you're going to defend yourself emotionally. And notice from our reading, it's got nothing to do with how cozy your circumstances. In the midst of glory and hope in the midst of suffering. So here's an important question. What flows from me when I let my emotional guard down? I, I mean, do I have to have like walls and fortresses around my real self? That's not remotely what God has in mind when he says that the fruit of the Spirit includes, for example, self-control where I have to have a whole bunch of stuff to stop me from being seen for who I am. <laughs> That's just self-protection. And Freud and others have called it defense mechanisms. And, and we're actually defending ourselves from integrating. Do I have to carefully manage or even suppress my emotions so that I don't lose it? 
promise you that's not self-control. You see, once the Holy Spirit has trained me to fully delight and enjoy the love of God, I just don't need those emotional defenses. And you can actually startle people by just being, not like too much information, but just vulnerable. We'll be safe and life-giving, kind to ourselves and to others. Because I haven't had to defend, build, maintain walls. So that who you are doesn't touch me and who I am doesn't touch you. Last week we saw that part of true love is that it acts in the interests of others. But we need to understand that it's a mistake to think that we only lower our defenses when we are godly enough. Lowering your defenses is a prerequisite for the Holy Spirit to change you. And if you're going to try and have all your emotional stuff and distance and barriers intact, whether it's just to protect your reputation or whatever, you're not going to see the love of God poured into the very center of your being. You're not going to receive the salvation of your most inner self. But you know, we've got to realize it's completely safe to do this because the God who, while we were yet powerless and while we were sinners, sent His Son to give Himself for us. This is the God who's saying, let me in. This isn't Rome. This isn't Caesar, this isn't Babylon, this isn't a dragon, this is God. Yet the lie of the enemy is we have to defend ourselves from God instead of surrender ourselves to God. Our Father gives the Spirit because He knows how to give good gifts, is what Jesus explains in Luke 11. I think, I think one of the reasons little children are commended in Scripture is they haven't learned to build all those stupid barriers. And, and so they are just, they just there with you. They're just accessible. They, they you know, they're, they're amazing. I, I don't know. I mean, children do, should have a license, but, you know, to operate. And, but we as adults, we just don't know it. But they're so inquiring and so curious, so ambitious, so expectant, so loving, so trusting. They're free to laugh and cry all within moments. And, you know, I've got one kid in particular who specializes in crying and laughing at the same time. I won't mention anyone, but he's in Manchester at the moment. Um, they're just emotionally transparent, internally accessible, deeply vulnerable. And, you know... The Explore Steering Team were asked to submit up-to-date photos for the newcomer's lunch so that we could, you know, introduce the Explore Steering Team. And, and it, it got a little bit dodgy, but in any case, so um, Cindy took that one and put that on, you know, little children. And uh, that's Pastor Bevan, who, by the way, is preaching in Strand this morning. And then Liz is helping Cindy, but she's not there. So... And I was looking at this and little children who are emotionally transparent and vulnerable. So, uh, <laughs> they all agreed I won. 
Put that phone away. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I want to say that the kingdom of God comes only to those who trust him enough to get right inside your heart. To, to defend yourself is to grieve the spirit because you don't trust him. And he really wants to pour these good things, unlock these good things in you. So in a sense, and, and may I say that this is probably why there's never been a genuine revival that's not been accused of emotionalism. Where people are just like, ah, you know, just can't trust this thing or whatever it is. Donna referenced something that we did a while ago, and it's actually called, and we've developed a tool for it, called the forgiveness lifestyle, and I didn't cue him on this, but when you recognize something's wrong, you've got to face a choice. It's, like a, it's normally like a dance. You do both. You've actually got to use your left foot and your right foot. You're going to repent and forgive. But sometimes it looks more like I'm going, I need to forgive someone or I need to repent. And it isn't time to explain the whole thing now. But then you, by faith, need to receive your forgiveness or release it and bless the other person, which becomes the will for good. And having done that, you've got to recognize the stuff you recognized in the beginning, the, the stuff you had to confess. That has a spiritual component that defiles. And if you leave that, and, and so in submitting to God, in repentance, what, what happens is you get the opportunity to say of an approach, an emotion, a thought pattern, a worldview, a spirit, get out in Jesus' name. You got in through sin. That sin is now forgiven. It's canceled. Your authority to occupy is over. Get out. In American, skidoo. In Afrikaans, no. <laughs> you can't. You got to say to that thing, not just, in other words, identify the thing that needs to leave that darkness. And then you need to actively replace it, which is what the point of this whole sermon is, actually. I'm preaching about step five. Now, the rest of the week's notes, by the way, spend a lot of time. So we've spent time in the series so far, in a sense, unpacking number one, number two, number three. And we really are doing some hard work at number four and five right now. And then a little bit later, we will look at a social level in a couple of months' time, at restitution, reconciliation, and a just people. Because I think that's core part of the engine of genuine disciple-making. You can't have a theology of discipleship that doesn't look to put wrongs right. But the interesting thing here is if you, if you look at this at number four and five, we so often want to say to something, I forgive you, I'm done. And we don't consciously say of the thought pattern, of the mindset, and of that emotion. Hopelessness, I see. Get out. Anger, I know what you're trying to do. And I know what you're trying to take from me. This is not righteous anger. This is deeply unrighteous anger. And I see your strategy, and I do not accept you. And I've forgiven the person who opened the door to that anger. Now get out. And then, Father God, you give good things. You always trade up. You take my rubbish and you give me righteousness. What do you want to give me in place of this thing? Is such a crucial understanding. And he wants to give you his spirit who produces this 
good stuff. So, a learning joy and glory is so intense. Paul describes, you can't, Peter says, uh, you can't really describe it. You can just try and express it. You just burst with it. I've got, a, I've got a very important question for you. You might need to turn. Is joy spiritual? I mean, the answer is actually going to tell you a lot about what you think is real um, and your worldview. Is joy spiritual or frivolous? I mean, is laughter sp- spiritual? Can it be? Can sheer delight and enjoyment be a spiritual thing? I promise you, if it's coming in at step five, it's a beautiful, beautiful gift from God. We don't only fight the negative. Now, let me say this, because when we talk about emotion, there are inadequate responses, whether they come from a community or they come from individuals. And, and, and let me just flag those so that you don't think I'm not aware that, that this does have balance. The problem is, your problem And I'm going to tell you the stuff that's the dangers, but these are all the reasons you've used to build the wall, okay? So you're hiding behind the wall made up of the reasons I'm about to tell you. They don't constitute a good reason to build the wall because you don't want to grieve the spirit. You don't want to shut them off. Nevertheless, they are dangers, but you can let him in because he's bigger than any of these dangers. And so they're common mistakes that lack wisdom in integrating emotion into our spiritual journey. And the first is emotionalism, whether it's joy or weeping or whatever it is, indignant, righteous anger. And we cultivate emotion for emotion's sake. And clearly, that's dumb. Projection. You're in a given situation and you're thinking, everybody should be feeling what I'm feeling. Because this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Listen, I've been in a room where there's absolute chaos. One person is lying stock still out on the floor, not saying a word, barely even conscious. Another person is babbling. One person is crying. Another person is laughing. One person is silent, irreverent, or another person is shouting at the top of their voice. And the Holy Spirit is working with each person. If they had to say in that particular space... Because you're not responding the way I am and responding, you clearly aren't meeting with God. You're just missing the point. It's the problem of projection. Now, most of us actually have a reverse projection problem in which we think when somebody else does something, ooh, I need to respond like that if I'm spiritual. Habish, let the Holy Spirit produce in you, bear the fruit in you that you need in that moment. And then imitation, of course, you know, we start copying the real thing because we're hoping somehow to either trigger or, I don't know, imitation can have a whole bunch of really bad reasons. Don't take photographs yet, more good stuff is coming. Uh, Lack of consideration for others. So you know what it is to open your heart to God and you just go for it, but you're in a situation where a bunch of other people don't yet understand. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, for example, if you've got a seeker and an inquirer among you, help them understand what's going on. Rather than everyone, for example, in that context, praying simultaneously in tongues, and and the person's completely at a loss as to what the 
thinking is in the room because they haven't yet experienced that. And that's a lack of consideration. Probably less common, especially in a healthy church, but it is out there, and we've got to be careful it isn't in here, is emotional manipulation, which is not just a mistake, it's a sin. Because manipulation is not just lacking in wisdom, it's lacking in integrity. You're trying to control people, which is a very dark thing. Yet in spite of these potential pitfalls, God still wants you to open your deepest self to him. He'd rather you take this risk, run this minefield, and get to the other side than use these things to keep you from entering into and to keep us as a congregation, as a collective, from entering into the freedom of grace and the joy. And of course, we saw last week that one of the most challenging things about all this is then that our love has proved authentic, not by the emotion we display, but by the fruit it produces in the way we care for others. But hear me, it's not that you grit your teeth and make sure that you care for others, it's that you let his love be poured into the center of your truest self and let that care and that consideration and that kindness and faithfulness and gentleness, in other words, the other things of the fruit of the Spirit, be the fruit of the Spirit instead of your own moral performance. And so we've got to learn how to do this together and build relationships where we actually get to open up and explore and talk about stuff we feel. And if we're going to say, God, won't you open me up? Won't you pour your love in? He's going to say, I'm bringing all my friends too. He is. He's going to bring a whole church and march right into the center of your heart. And of course, they're not nearly as perfect as him. But you just don't get to enjoy him alone. And of course, we're going to mess this up. That's why we forgive. That's why we love. Let's have the worship team come up. I, a man who had quite a significant influence, I've, I've met him a few times. Um, he's a generation or two older than I am, so he's really elderly now. Um, David Pitchers described one occasion where he recognized that God just has the craziest sense of humor. They were praying for people like we did at the end of the service last week. And a lady came forward and he was praying for her. And he hadn't yet learned to try and see what God is doing. So he would close his eyes and put his hand on her head and pray like crazy. And she was, I think she needed prayer for her ears. So he put his hand on her ears like this on the side, closed his eyes, starting to pray. And after a while as he was praying, he felt her head go squishy, like soft. And so he was praying. And, and as he was praying, he was like, getting a little bit worried, but his eyes were firmly shut, and he didn't want to open his eyes and look her in the eye to see that she knew that he was, you know. But so he kind of let his hands go closer, and eventually he knew he could feel his own fingers through her head. So by that stage, he thought, there's a real problem here, and he opened his eyes to find that as he had prayed for her, she had just dropped to the floor, and she was lying there, and her hairpiece was in his hands <laughs> as he was... <laughs> 
Apart from his personal assistant who was paralytic on the floor, he wasn't sure, too sure how many other people had noticed. So he kind of walked over, and he's a real proper Londoner Brit kind of guy. He walked over and dropped her hairpiece on her and moved on to carry on praying for others. When suddenly she began to cry out, I can't see, I'm blind, I can't see, I'm blind. And he'd put her hairpiece on back to front. So I don't know what we've got to do in one sense. To recognize that actually this is a joy, this is a delight. This is a space where I lower those defenses. I say, God, I do want you to get light on the inside of me. Those things that I've used to protect myself have actually kept you from having access to me. That's the thing. You never thought you were protecting yourself from God. You just thought you were protecting yourself from others. But you cannot protect yourself from others. And still have the fullness of God. And so he invites us. Calls us. To come and stand. By faith in grace. And open up. Our truest selves. And let him bring his healing and grace. I'm not sure how to respond. Maybe consciously you want to take some of these walls and bricks and literally tear them down. Lord, I thought I had to copy others. You, you want me to be unique. Lord, I've taken on stuff that I really shouldn't have. I've actually allowed manipulation. I've done manipulation, whatever. Tear down the wall. Tear down the wall. And say, Jesus, won't you come? Fill me, fill me, fill me. Overflow me with your love.